Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And it's a particular pleasure to have here tonight Dr. Constantine Petritis, who is a curator who has been helping us out from Cleveland with our African collection that Murray Frum gave us. Um, we're going to start with uh, Costa. We call him Costa, so I'm going to call him Costa. Uh, he's going to talk, and hopefully we'll have a question and answer afterwards. I think there could be a lot of discussion around this magnificent topic. We are going to podcast this talk, so if you ask questions and so on, that will also be recorded, so just so you know. Um, we're, we're delighted in 2008 when we reopen, we'll close for a short while, and in 2008 we will reopen and we will have a magnificent African art gallery, which will be, if and many of you I'm sure know, Western Hall. It'll be above that, that will be slabbed over, and we will have this absolutely stunning gallery. And we have Shim, Sim, Shim Sutcliffe, the architects, working on the design of it. And we've spent today in a very cold, damp place, cutting out models and sticking them up on walls and trying one thing against another. So let me read you Costa's resume, his bio, sorry. Costa was invited over a year ago to the AGO to serve as consulting curator for the installation of the renowned From Collection of African Art in 2008. Costa currently is based in Cleveland, where he holds a joint appointment as Associate Curator of African Art at the Cleveland Museum of Art and Assistant Professor of Art History at Case Western Reserve University. A native of Belgium, while obviously of Greek origin, Costa obtained his PhD in Art History from Ghent University in 1997. His dissertation dealt with the arts of the Lelua people of the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly known as Zaire. He has held fellowships from the Belgian National Fund for the Scientific Research, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Belgian American Education Foundation, and most recently, the Center for Advanced Studies in the History of Art at the National Gallery in Washington, DC. He has published numerous articles on Central African art in journals such as African Arts, um, and Arts d'Afrique Noire. Uh, he is also the editor of books published in conjunction with two temporary exhibitions organized by the Museum of Ethnography in Antwerp, Face of the Spirits, on Mars from the Congo River Basin in 1993, and a show on the life and work of one of the founding fathers of African art studies, Belgian scholar Franz Albrecht, in 2001. A year upon his arrival in Cleveland, he reinstalled the gallery of sub-Saharan African art in 2003, while expanding the collection through a number of important new acquisitions. The occasion was accompanied by a wide range of public events and the publication of highlights of the Cleveland collection under the title of South of the Sahara. However, the new African gallery in Cleveland was deinstalled, a terrible word, barely two years after its reopening to make room for the construction of a major museum expansion designed by Raphael Vinoli, scheduled to open in 2008. We will not be deinstalling de this gallery, let me tell you. Costa. Thank you very much for this kind introduction and thank you all for being here. And I don't want to sound like an airline company, but I know you have a number of choices, many more than we would have in Cleveland. And I thank you for being here on a Friday evening um, I hope I will be able to uh, 
um, entertain you to some extent and hopefully also enlighten you to some extent. But I should say that this is an informal talk and that this is going to be a very introductory talk too. So if you're expecting theory, um, you might be at the wrong place, but I shouldn't say that because you can't change your tickets anymore. So anyway, um, what I would like to do is indeed um, take advantage of this uh, opportunity to introduce you to the From Collection of African Art and at the same time introduce you to the wide variety, the wealth and the depth of uh, the arts of the African subcontinent as well. And you'll see that I have a lot of images, many of which are not of the From Collection of African Art, and I've always acknowledged the source of the images on the slides. Um, what I would like to do uh, today is, on the one hand, uh, point out a couple of very general uh, key features of African art, as much as this is possible, and then also maybe shed some light on the issues that uh, surround both the study of this um, particular field of art history and the um, issues that surround the exhibition of this art in a Western museum context, as it may be relevant to your institution and many other museum institutions all over the world. And then I will, um, in a kind of second phase of the talk, focus in on um, uh, what I consider to be pr uh, dominant traits of African art, um, being on the one hand the relationship between the art and uh, political issues, political leadership, and on the other hand, the relationship between African art and uh, the sacred or the supernatural or religion, if you wish. Let's start with just a general slide as a background. Um, obviously, African art collections, no matter where they are, are personal and subjective uh, to a large extent. They're formed by individuals with a particular taste, with a particular background, with uh, particular interests. Um, and that is, that is true for any museum collection. Uh, we, as a public, tend to think that um, there's a kind of automatic, objective um, system that uh, informs collecting African art and other art uh, forms in a collection, but we, in doing that, we ignore the fact that there too, there are very often individuals or at least a number of individuals who make choices and decisions and who ultimately are responsible for the particular appearance of a collection. Obviously, in the case of a private collection, this is even more the case, um, and uh, that is especially true uh, for the From Collection of African Art, which is in many ways a very personal, very subjective collection, um, which reflects the taste in the eye of an individual who's been interested in this material since uh, times that other people have not been particularly interested or were not particularly interested in that material. In the meantime, things have changed drastically. Um, but the fact is also that uh, because it is a personal and a private collection, it is, as I mentioned, subjective, and it's definitely never attempted to be an encyclopedic collection. Um, it definitely doesn't offer a survey of all the arts that have been produced on the African continent, and maybe that's a good thing for a number of reasons, but among uh, these is the fact that it would be impossible to just represent all the arts of Africa, because obviously there are many Africans, there are many arts, and I will uh, return to that point in just a second. The good thing about this is that um, here at least we know that the 90 or so objects, and I say or, or so, and I would like to emphasize that, that will be on display in 2008, reflect the taste of one individual only. Um, and that, um, as I mentioned, when uh, Dr. Fromm started collecting African art, the interest in it was relatively small, and then his personal taste will appear very strongly, as I will show you later, because um, 
he was really interested in particular types of African art that um, reflect his interest in the arts in general and also um, his uh, main emphasis on formal features, um, issues of construction and structure. Many Africa's many arts, uh, we should of course remember that um, there's Africa as a huge uh, continent. It's the second largest continent in the world. It occupies about 20% of the total land mass. It covers um, 54 countries and over 2,000 languages. In total, about 900 million peoples live there. Um, this is an old map of Africa, and I apologize for that. I uh, notice it every time I give a talk that my map gets outdated before I realize it. So I won't go into the details, but it just gives you an idea of the vastness of this continent. And obviously the vastness of the continent, as I um, already mentioned, implies a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different um, ways of living and of thinking, and as a result also a lot of uh, different uh, art forms uh, with a huge variety. And basically speaking of African art and representing it in one gallery um, is something that is quite impossible to accomplish, and the same is true of giving an introduction to African art in a in one hour span of time. But I'll still try and do my best to give you at least some, um, some introductory uh, background information. Um, the fact of the matter is that there are very few textbooks, survey books, that are complete and completely satisfactory. Um, and um, the, as a result of that, uh, th there's also a lot of misconceptions that have been established and that will, that unfortunately keep uh, bothering us, misconceptions that simplify um, the situation to a large extent. Um, since a long time, when talking about African art, people tend to focus on the region south of the Sahara uh, Desert region. And um, in more recent years, there has been a trend to expand that focus and to also include the whole area uh, north of the Sahara, um, including Egypt and the many ties that it has with uh, parts of the uh, ancient Near Eastern world and the Mediterranean world. Now, in the From collection, it should be emphasized that um, the collection represents only material from south of the Sahara, which is true for many collections of African art throughout the world. And it's actually also true for the Cleveland Museum of Art, um, where um, I am working and where we reinstalled the collection and purposely decided to call it South of the Sahara and indicate that there was the arts of Egypt and Islamic Muslim Northern Africa were represented in other parts of the museum's um, galleries. The interesting thing about the From Collection is that despite its um, personal um, subjective focus, um, it does offer a good sense of the variety of materials. Um, and it spans a relatively broad geographic area, basically going from West Africa to um, parts of East Africa, and, and covering many of the peoples that uh, live in a variety of uh, different countries today. And it also sheds light on the historic depth of many African art traditions. People in the West tend to think that African art is of a, rec a relatively recent date, and the fact is that many objects have been collected relatively recently, and that many objects were not meant to survive in Africa itself. 
um, and we're also not really um, uh, resistant to climatic conditions in order to make them live a long life. But despite that, there are, of course, objects that have survived and that go back far in time. And then there's also a whole range of archaeological material of which the From Collection contains some examples, including this um, uh, ceramic fired clay object from the Nox site in Nigeria, um, which is tiny, small, but which is uh, quite old and is, has been tentatively dated between 500 BC and 200 AD and is still generally considered to be a representative of the oldest sculptural tradition in sub-Saharan Africa. Cleveland also has a knock piece. There's obviously not so many that are around um, and that have been preserved intact. Most of them have been uh, found under the ground or in the soil, and many of them have come to us in fragments. Um, in Cleveland, we have a fragment of a full figure, which is a large head, considerably larger than the piece here at the AGO, and obviously also representing a different style and a different uh, surface treatment and other uh, technical uh, differences. So despite the fact that I just said that it's very difficult to, to generalize and to reduce, I would still, uh, through a number of examples, like to shed some, um, like to shed some light on, on some key features of African art. Um, one is the sculptural primacy, um, the importance and the dominance of sculptural materials. Uh, the second is ensemble and assemblage, two concepts which have also promoted um, the interest in this material on behalf of artists um, in contemporary times and in the avant-garde especially. Then the notion of performance, so crucial to many African arts. Then the idea of multiplicity of meanings and complexity of meanings. And then finally the idea of humanism, the emphasis on the human figure as it transpires through different, um, different forms of African art. Um, sculptural art is indeed what dominates, although we should keep in mind that what we know of African art is what survived and what has been collected, and that there's obviously a number of objects that we don't know the existence of because they haven't been collected or they haven't been, um, they haven't survived. Here you see a uh, chief's figure from the Chokwe of Angola, uh, where you have one way to um, uh, illustrate a human figure in a sculptural way. It's a wooden sculpture, quite complex, made out of one piece of wood with an attempt um, that is quite um, astonishing to imitate reality through the addition of human hair in order to depict the beard and also a very accurate rendering of all kinds of anatomical details like the fingers, the, the toes, um, facial features, musculature, etc. The emphasis on sculpture is obviously also to be found in masks, uh, where the majority of masks, again, that we know of are those made out of wood and more durable materials. Although when you see this mask, um, and I'm already uh, running ahead in saying this, it's only a fragment of a more total um, way of um, hiding the, the, the identity of the person who will wear this mask along with a costume, and the mask itself would be um, uh, enhanced with additions and accessories of all kinds. But then there's the notion of um, the ensemble, the fact that many African artworks were not necessarily meant to be seen and used as single individual uh, autonomous objects, but were rather part of a grouping of objects of all kinds. And this is an extreme example where in collections you would occasionally find small figures, as the ones that you see here, carved in wood representing human, um, uh, human features. But in reality, they were part of this divination basket grouped together, and they all had meeting, meaning in relationship to one another. 
another. Obviously, this kind of material has not been collected widely and is therefore not widely represented. But also, human figures are very often part of an assemblage, of an ensemble, rather, and in this case, in a shrine among the Igbo people in Nigeria, where different images of different sizes with different features, often made by different artists at different times, are grouped together and uh, become part of that um, ensemble that the shrine is, while in Western collections you would see maybe one object very often stripped off of its original accessories and attributes, meaning without the textile fragments that dress, literally dress the figures as you see them here in context in 1983. Then there's of course the idea of assemblage, uh, which you will recognize in most forms of African art where you have very often a, a, a wooden carved uh, sculptural uh, core, but then um, the, the sculpture as such is, is bedecked covered, almost hidden by all kinds of added materials. Um, metal, animal uh, parts like these horns planted in the head of this Songye figure, um, metal elements that decorate the face, the textiles that wrap the body of the figure, the beaded necklaces, all of it in an attempt to enhance the realism of the object on the one hand, but also add to its visual impact, and as a result of that, add to its aesthetics. Very often these kind of attributes have been removed when the objects were shipped or arrived in the West, but it's obvious that um, the, uh, the, the assemblage is, is a key feature of this kind of art as it is of many other kinds of art. And the notion of assemblage obviously also um, applies to masks. And here you see an example of a chokwe mask, but this time with the coif represented and preserved. Um, a coif that is very, a hairstyle that is very, very uh, realistic, uh, an imitation of a real kind of hairstyle and coiffure. And then on the right, an, a step further, where you see how the mask is part of a whole costume and where ultimately even the word mask for the people who make this, the chokwe of Angola, um, the word mask means more than just the facial element in their language. Mukishi refers, among other things, to the whole body costume, to the whole transformation of the person who wears it into this masked um, character, which ultimately also refers to the spirit world and points to yet another dimension of African art. Then, of course, there's the idea of performance, which is very, very strong when it comes to, when it comes to masquerades. Um, and here you see an, an, a beautiful slide made in the 1970s of a Dogon masquerade, where you, of course, get a sense of the movement, the dynamism, the fact that, again, these art forms have to be seen in conjunction with other, um, with a multitude of similar objects, that the movement, the kinetic aspect is important, and you can only imagine the music, the sound, the singing that goes along with it, and that creates a, a whole spectacle where every uh, part of, uh, aspect of visual art, but also music and dance and choreography becomes one, and where obviously the aesthetic impact, the visual impact, the aesthetic impact in the experience is very different from viewing the object in and by itself um, in uh, vitrine. I mentioned anthropomorphism, and that is also widely applicable to many forms of African art. And even if some things to us only uh, seem remotely to be human-shaped um, to the African people themselves, um, they, they very often refer either directly or indirectly to the human form, to the human body as a source of inspiration, which was also true for this weird creatures related to a masquerade called Do among the Bois people of Burkina Faso made out of leaves and other vegetal, vegetal materials and feathers. And obviously these objects have not been collected widely, although they have a very old history that has been documented 
in travel sources of the 19th century. They've not been collected in part because they were difficult to transport, but also because they were far away from um, aesthetic uh, taste in the West. Um, but they obviously non-sculptured sculptured materials, um, materials of perishable natural um, origin are widely used in African art and may even be more important than the wooden carvings and the other durable materials that we often tend to focus on because those have been collected more often. Anthropomorphism is also important, the emphasis on the human shape, because the human body is a source of artistic expression and becomes a human body in many, many cultures in Africa. And here is a paradigmatic example example of a king among the Cuba people who literally um, turns into an artwork at public um, appearances on public occasions. He's bedecked and covered with all kinds of clothing um, where every part of the clothing has a meaning or multiple meanings and just adds to the literal weight of the character. And on top of it, um, you also, um, in this case, have um, the fact that um, again, the performance becomes important. It's a living work of art, literally. Um, so you have the combination of many different uh, features. And, and uh, in, in conjunction with that, the importance of hairstyles, of headdresses, that are all elements to decorate and um, aestheticize the human body, which are widespread, even in those parts of Africa where sculpture is not encountered, uh, sometimes in the eastern and southern parts of Africa, because of nomadic existence, people didn't have the material means to support a sculptural, heavy artistic tradition, and then the human body became the sole or main form of artistic expression. And you'll, uh, you, you, you will find in those cultures many ways to decorate and enhance the body through all kinds of jewelry, clothing, or in a more, um, here you see among the Lega people, the same kind of hairstyles and clothing, and again, the importance of performance, where actually theater and dance are very important forms of visual expression. Um, among the same Lega people, you find the human form represented in ivory works, much less common than people think, uh, think in general when it comes to African art. Um, a recent acquisition of the Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, masks, even, and you see the extremes, and uh, that's the other point that I want to make, that there's an extreme variety of styles to be found, where you have, on the one end, absolute uh, uh, scarce, stark, stylized forms, and on the other hand, very realistic, naturalistic form, where the point is to imitate reality as much as possible. And sometimes those two tendencies in one and the same culture, um, for different reasons. Also in old material, a large-scale horse and rider in the National Museum of African Art in DC, um, dated 11th to 16th century, made out of fired clay, uh, with again an emphasis on the human figure in these old art forms. And I could have shown you rock art traditions of Southern uh, African art, which are even older than this 10,000 BC, and there too the human figure is a main source of information. Or in ceramics, in vessels that are used on a daily basis, although in this case, it obviously the vessel uh, refers to either rank and status in society or at least has spiritual sacred connotations and is more than just a vessel for daily use. But even there, you find an enhancement and elaboration of uh, a, a seemingly simple utilitarian tool into an, a human-shaped or at least a, a form with some human traits and features. And then through these two slides, I just want to point out the, the other forms of uh, body decoration, um, which are then very realistically mimicked in some sculptural art forms, like that necklace on the left, 
which is actually meant in order to preserve the kind of coiffures that are represented on the sculpture and that are seen in this old field photograph of the 1930s, which would take 40 hours to be produced with the aid of two or three assistants. And so it was quite uh, important for the people who wore them to be able to keep them as long as possible. And that's why these necklaces were very useful and were used widely by the high-ranking women who were able to afford these kind of very expensive and fancy coiffures. Um, in showing you these slides, I also indirectly um, wanted to point out a number of other ideas. And one fact is, of course, that much African art, but not all, um, is not um, uh, to be confused with our relatively modern, basically 19th century notion of art for art's sake. Most of this art is functional in the broad sense of the term and has an other meaning to, to another function, another purpose to fulfill than just to please the eye. Um, but this said, there are examples where the term and the idea of art for art's sake can be applied, and we also need to keep in mind that much of the art reproduced in our Western art history survey books and shown in our Western art museums is not, um, um, cannot be related to the concept of art for art's sake either. And in saying this, that Af much of African art is functional, uh, one runs the risk to overemphasize the applied nature of the arts, which is one of the reasons why originally there was little interest from art historical circles and from art museums to show this kind of art within the precinct of an art museum, because people overemphasized the functionality of it, uh, the objects became tools, and um, this is one mistake um, that um, this um, leads to is that people tend to minimize the aesthetic qualities and impact of the art forms in question. And you'll see that um, there is definitely uh, something like aesthetics to, to recognize in many, many African art forms. Many uh, uh, African cultures have a very specific and elaborate and refined and sophisticated vocabulary to talk about aesthetics. Interestingly, what they find beautiful is not necessarily what we find beautiful. Um, but unfortunately, we have a lot of questions because much of it has not been researched very well. And it's only recently when people started to acknowledge the aesthetic aspects and qualities of African art that people have turned attention to the notion of uh, philosophy of beauty and how it um, applies and translates into African art. Um, but I hope that at least the installation that we are um, uh, striving for and, the, and that in the goals that we're um, uh, setting forth here at the AGO, um, we, we will make it clear that um, the art in question um, has aesthetic qualities and impact that is definitely in addition to, if not, um, uh, in, um, if not even um, more important than the functionality of the art in question. Um, but as a result of those emphasis, there are two ways to study and to exhibit African art. And until recently, they've been seen as each other's opposite. On the one hand, you have the tendency to focus on the object per se, as such, um, and to read the object um, as a, a work of art that um, represents some formal, stylistic, and other features, and to at best use society or cultural knowledge and context to enlighten and illuminate the object. In the other approach uh, was the approach where it's not so much the object that was the focus of attention, but the culture, the context in which it belonged, and that the objects were used as illustrations of certain um, ideas or practices of these foreign cultures. 
Rose. And in an old-fashioned way, this is basically the distinction between old art history and, on the other hand, um, anthropology, um, or um, art museums versus anthropology museums. And the few slides that I'm showing you show you the difference of, on the one hand, a Bamana antelope headdress as a piece of art as such without any context. On the other hand, similar works of art were worn in context in 1905-1906, but the same situation has been documented in the 80s and 90s, where you see the mask with a costume, again, as part of a performance. The same here, uh, helmet mask of the Pende in uh, Congo, and worn during a boy's initiation in that same part of Africa or even a so-called stationary object, a, a staff of office held by the Luba people, how it's also part of, um, in um, modern times, even 1989, part of the attributes of chiefs of different ranks in Luba society. Um, so the difference between art history focus on the object and anthropology focusing on the context in which the object is embedded. Um, Obviously, in, at this institution and uh, many other museums today, and scholars too will attempt to combine, to fuse, to marry the two approaches and try to shed light on both issues, although it's not always easy to do that. The real recognition of African art as art started around 1911 with avant-garde artists in France, in Paris, but also in Germany, who looked at these artworks mainly as a source of inspiration for their own artistic creativity and activity. And this kind of mode has basically um, driven and led the interest of these arts um, on a much broader scale. And in a certain extent, the from, from collection, Murray Fromm's interest in African art is, is a, let's say, late exponent of this kind of way of looking at um, African art. This led to the first art museum installations of African art, 1935 Museum of Modern Art in New York, very, very revolutionary at the time, and still very modern when you look at the way the art is installed there um, in the, those old days. The emphasis on sculptural form and exhibited at MoMA just like any other form of sculptural art from anywhere in the world would be exhibited. And this show traveled to Cleveland, but of course in Cleveland, even in 35, people were a little bit more old-fashioned and not entirely ready to go as far in their modern approach to this artwork. But the emphasis was still, as you can see, on a kind of very decorative setting and installation of the art, art I'm sorry, and on emphasis on formal relationships and formal qualities without, uh, without or with very little information about the function, the meaning, the context in which this artwork occurred. Now, in, in a new context, and especially in uh, um, museums of ethnography or ethnology or ethnological museums in the old world, in Europe and in Berlin or Germany in general in particular, you'll find old collections that were part of anthropology museums, but that have obviously, because of the time that they were built, uh, huge masterpieces among their holdings. And here in a relatively recent installation in Berlin, you'll see that some of these masterworks are um, installed in a kind of recreated or staged masquerade in order to try and, um, and, and uh, combine these two ways of seeing, these two ways of understanding African art. And at the same time, a little bit more modern, you find the other extreme at the Louvre in Paris where the emphasis is on sculptural forms and where ultimately the difference with the 19th 
1935 MoMA exhibition is not huge. The, the main difference is that you'll find an interpretation room, which is huge, which has, I think, nine or 12 computers installed where you can get any kind of information about the objects in question, comparatives, uh, social, historical, cultural context, etc. But the installation as such is very object focused and is very much about individual pieces and their sculptural presence and qualities. Just to give you a quick idea about um, the range, the wide range of the From Collection, and at the same time without repeating myself too much to emphasize the, um, the, the clear, um, specific um, attention devoted by Dr. From to the um, sculptural qualities, the architect architectural qualities of many of these artworks. Um, and also, and even if this term um, should used with great caution, the uh, uh, interest in so-called expressionistic um, forms of art, where the, the, the emphasis is on impact, on visual impact, rather than on, on the minute representation or imitation of real uh, decorative or anatomical details. Uh, a couple of the Dogon people in Mali, horse rider in Mali, uh, from Mali, um, Grebo, a very rare type of so-called plank mask. A very rare example of um, a Yoruba sculpture from Nigeria serving as a caryatid. From Nigeria, again, horse rider, a mask, skin covered, antelope skin covered, uh, multiple head or multiple face helmet mask of the Ajagan people in Nigeria. Um, and again, I'd like to emphasize that in many ways, this is a very different, very personal collection. And I think this is one of the great um, um, advantages and, and maybe um, um, assets of um, having it here at the AGO in Toronto, because I really think that the collection stands apart in many ways from many uh, more classical collections throughout, um, uh, the, uh, throughout the North America. Oron, Nigeria, and you'll see with a few images that I have left that there's a, a great interest in weathered wood objects, obje objects that have um, uh, been placed outside, that have been um, vulnerable to weather conditions, to rain and wind, and that have, as a result, um, received this kind of surface treatment in a natural way that shows erosion, long-time uh, use, and that shows obliteration of uh, formal and other uh, detailed features. There's a strong taste for that in the uh, From Collection, as you will see um, in a couple of other examples. This is obviously what I was alluding to when I refer to cubistic shapes and forms. I don't think it can be more than that. Um, and uh, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that it's just amazing how the human face can be interpreted and rendered uh, in such a different way or in so many different ways throughout the continent. And I'm not necessarily showing you objects that come from the extreme north and the extreme south of the continent. Sometimes we're talking about neighboring groups or even within a group, a very different way to reading and to interpreting and, and rendering the human face. But it's also interesting to notice that in addition to these more abstract, powerful objects, there is also a part of the collection that is about details, about anatomical um, realism, about um, careful representation of human features and details. 
and this is one example. And then again, Bongo Sudan, which is the only object from Eastern Africa, a very large-scale uh, pole-like sculpture that again testifies to that interest in weathered um, wood. Then, um, in closing, I'd, uh, not in closing because we still have some time to go, but as, a, as a, a more concrete way of shedding light on two of the basic functions of African art, I'd like to briefly introduce you to art and leadership as it is reflected in an almost iconic way in the grass fields of Cameroon. And um, one of the notable features of the From Collection is that it contains a lot of Cameroonian material, which will actually automatically be visually highlighted in the new, uh, newly designed design gallery because, uh, among other reasons, because they're also uh, monumental in scale. And uh, also in this respect, the collection is, is very different from what you will find in many other places in America, uh, because the arts of Cameroon, uh, it has taken a long time before they were generally appreciated, even among African art amateurs. And so the, the largest collections of this material are to be found in Germany as a result of colonialism, where most of this material ended up end of the 19th century, early 20th century. There's very few private collections that have a wealth of Cameroonian material that is even remotely comparable to what the uh, From collection is about. Um, so African art and leadership, um, it's obvious that many forms of African art have to do with uh, expression of rank and of leadership, uh, political organization and structure, and that it can be both the materials that are used and also the scale, but in addition to that, the meanings that these objects um, imply that are used in order to um, confirm or enhance a political situation. And very often we're thinking of objects that have to do with marking rank, marking status, marking dominance in society in order to confirm it and perpetuate it. And so obviously the strongest ties between politics and leadership are to be found in more centralized societies in Africa, like the many different kingdoms or chiefdoms that you find in that grass fields region in Cameroon, a mountainous region in the western part of Cameroon, uh, inhabited by a large number of Bantu-speaking people, uh, people which share uh, centuries of common history and are also tied uh, through um, an extensive uh, network of uh, trade. Um, the, the artworks that these different chiefdoms and kingdoms have produced and used shows some similarities, but at the same time, there's a lot of variety within um, this broader region. I mentioned a large number of people, 900,000 people in total. That is what the whole area um, would um, represent, but they're small and, and, and large kingdoms or chiefdoms, and that's why people make the distinction between chiefdoms and kingdoms, although all of this remains a little bit arbitrary. In any case, they are ruled by a king, a king who, at the same time as being a political authority, also holds very important sacred spiritual powers and has a very important religious role to fulfill. And that's something that you will find across the African continent and makes it in a certain way also rather theoretical to, to, to make the distinction between sacred political or, or sacred religious art on the one hand and profane um, political art on the other hand because there's so much overlap between the two and because ultimately the reason why a chief in Africa and a king in the Cameroon grassfields is able to rule effectively is because he has specific ties which other people don't have with the supernatural and he uses and taps onto the supernatural, onto the spirit world in order to be able to do things that others can't do. Um, the, the, these, um, uh, the, the, 
there are a couple of structural components that are shared between the different states. Uh, one of them is that in addition to the king, there is a council of nobles or elders, and there's a large variety of uh, secret or semi-secret associations or societies. And those two entities, the councils of elders and the uh, secret associations, um, provide a kind of um, uh, or assure the, 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 to maintain the balance of power and uh, assure that the king or the leader as such um, doesn't become an, a dictatorial autocratic ruler. Um, and, and much of the art is, is uh, used in the context of uh, political uh, structure and organization um, in order to give expression to this rather democratic way of ruling and to the, the, the importance of societal and communal values and uh, collaboration. Um, religion, as I said, played a big role in the organization of the kingdom and also in the forms of art. And that is, that, again, to say that many of the art forms of, of the Cameroon Grassfields, although they are primarily uh, related to aspects of political leadership, they also have references to the, the religious uh, domain. Um, much of the art that is produced there has to do with, as I said, with um, highlighting, celebrating political power um, and, and, and ideas that go along with it, wealth, prestige, um, and also generally influence. Um, more than in many other regions of, regions of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, political art forms are closely related to architecture, or architecture plays a big role in, in, um, in the artworks there, uh, where there's a wealth of sculptural decoration of houses and palace structures. And here you see one extreme example of it um, in the Chiefdom or the Kingdom of Batufama, a photo made in the, in the late 50s. Um, and which shows you these carved pillars that support the roof of these typical round houses with a thatched conical roof. And then you also see statues, freestanding statues, exhibited on the left and right side of the entrance, the entrance which itself is surrounded by uh, a lintel and a frame, which is also a very um, elaborate uh, type of wooden carving. Um, and you'll see that some of this material is to be found in the in the uh, From collection as well. Um, here you have a very famous image of one of the most uh, celebrated and well-known uh, kings of the Cameroon grassfields. The name Fon, which is printed there in italics, is the local name, one of the local names for the ruler, which has been tra translated in various ways as chief or king, etc. Uh, Joya is somebody who uh, was well-known to the Germans during colonial times, um, and he was a great diplomat who tied a lot of relationships with foreigners, and he also made a lot of presents, made a lot of gifts to foreign officials and visitors, and as a result of this generosity of King Joya, many of the objects that he distributed are found today in German collections, including the throne on which he's seated here during this public audience that has been photographed in 1912. The throne is now in that museum in Berlin. Um, and here in the throne, you see some of the key features of um, the arts of the grass fields, in this case, the Bamum uh, kingdom, where you have large scale, you have an emphasis on human figures, but also an importance of animal figures. And then the fact that you have a wooden carving covered entirely bedecked with beads, glass beads coming from Bohemia, pointing to international trade that reached those parts of Western Africa, and also cowrie shells, which like beads were used throughout Africa as currency and have all these connotations with wealth and um, 
and affluence. And so obviously here, both the iconography and the use of the specific materials underlines the political status of um, these objects. Cleveland just bought an, an object um, from that area, um, a stool, a leopard stool. The leopard, obviously, one of these royal animals in Cameroon, in the grass fields, like in many other places. And here again, the iconography of the leopard combined with the colorful beads that bede bedeck the wooden um, sculpture, a close-up of the image. Here you see the field photograph of another king, King, Kam king Kamga, in Banjun, where this particular stool was photographed in 1925 in front of a house or a structure with, again, these uh, carved supports. And that's an interesting aspect about Cameroonian grass fields arts, that we have these historical field documents which place the objects in their actual time frame, the time frame that they were used and produced. And that is true for some of the objects in the From collection as well. Another example of a beaded carving, a seated figure, the, most of the Cameroonian sculptures are commemorative memorial images that depict the king or uh, members of his royal um, um, surroundings, uh, other notables, um, or uh, members of his family that have a direct role to play in political leadership, his, his mother, the queen mother, uh, female advisors, etc. And they are represented as um, um, commemorated through these sculptures um, and also exhibited uh, on public occasions at regular times in order to, on the one hand, underline the continuity of traditions and generations and also pay tri tribute to the ancestors and to the predecessors and emphasize that um, the, the, the actual situation is a result of previous times, a result of, of uh, a long history on which uh, current leaders build and, and which current leaders expand. There's a whole wide range of objects that are um, figuratively decorated and that are related to leadership and uh, the Fong and his, his surroundings, including these ceramic um, animal-shaped pipe bowls, which are sometimes really very impressive sculptures. And here, uh, a number of objects from the From collection in the AGO with these massive um, memorial uh, uh, king figure on the left-hand side from Bakasa Kingdom, and then a door frame on the right-hand side, which is very anecdotal in the sense that it um, portrays a story um, that has been recorded um, that, uh, that happened um, in the late 19th century in the Baham chiefdom. And so it's a fragment of one of these door frames that, that is placed on both sides on, of the, uh, the entrance to the chief's main um, house. A mother and child image of a female member of the royal family um, of the Bangangte uh, chiefdom, again in the Cameroon grass fields. And, um, so, as I said, they, these, these, op these objects were traditionally um, displayed in order to celebrate and emphasize the, 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 the status and the leadership of uh, the rulers. They were um, especially exhibited during the installation uh, rituals that um, enacted the, the, the succession to the throne and, and there, thereby um, underlining the continuity of the royal um, heritage. Um, and they were also, um, uh, as I said, they were uh, sometimes seen as, as portraits um, where they were actually made during the first two years of the reign of a particular king, which allows statues to be dated quite accurately. The interesting thing is that among the grass fields of, uh, of, in the grass fields of Cameroon, you have artists that have been identified by name, whose biographies we know, because they worked for the king. They were full-time artists that were professional carvers that worked 
for the king. Um, and, and the kings themselves sometimes were carvers, well-known carvers. Carvers were admired and respected if their work was um, esteemed um, uh, popular and their work would actually be commissioned from far away and would travel uh, to far away regions. And that's why, um, contrary to many other parts in Africa, we have some names of artists that have been preserved with the sculptures in question. Two Bangwa carvings, one at the AGO, one in, uh, um, in Cleveland, and then maybe one of the highlights of the, um, of the collection, um, this uh, Batu Fam, mother and child a figure of a queen called Nana, a historical queen, um, which was the wife of a king called Metang, which uh, ruled from 1912 to 1924, and which was carved by an artist called Beu Zhang, so we actually also know the name of the artist, an artist who was active in a neighboring kingdom, um, and it's unfortunate that you can't really see the whole um, three-dimensional aspects of this sculpture, and that's why, of course, uh, we hope that you will come to the galleries when they reopen, because it's really a masterpiece of sculptural invention and construction. Um, but above all, this piece, a memorial figure to that Queen Nana, um, is also, again, an object that, while relating to political leadership, points to some crucial aspects of human life and to the fact that um, these king figures, among other things, uh, were not only memories to the kings and, and celebrations of the kings as such, but also that they were um, inst installed or exhibited at times in order to uh, provide protection, in order to, um, to um, bestow uh, riches and good health on the population, because ultimately, thanks to the king's access to the other world, he was able to, um, to uh, guard and to, um, to um, uh, protect his uh, people in general. And that's how these objects are, have to be seen, and that's how ultimately they bridge politics and religion. Interestingly, this image was also photographed even in an earlier picture than this in the 1920s, and then again in 1957, where um, you see it portrayed on the uh, right-hand side of the, um, of the door opening of that uh, king's house in Batu Fam, um, where you have the male figures on one side here, the female figures on this side, and this was one of the last treasures to be seen in um, uh, Cameroon in the field, and in fact, the, the chief Metang, who is the, uh, supposed to be the husband of Queen Nana, that is now at the AGO, is now at the Art Institute of Chicago, and some of the other pieces have been dispersed and are to be found in different private collections in Europe. Um, so it's interesting, again, to see here the ideas of ensemble and the ideas of the whole context, literally the architectural context, that give meaning to these uh, particular objects. And it's um, also interesting to remember that is, uh, this kind of Cameroonian material was also the kind of material that the artists of Die Brücke uh, saw in Dresden and that inspired German expressionists in their art, produce, uh, art production because it was readily available in German um, uh, museums um, in the early 20th century when it had been uh, collected and brought back from Africa. So there's a direct link to be made between these kind of artworks and um, and certain avant-garde art in, uh, in Europe, especially in Germany, and, and actually people like Pechstein and Nolde and Schmidt-Rotluf um, made drawings, sketches, etchings, paintings that literally represent some of this Cameroonian art that they had discovered or, or let's say, um, encountered in the museums in their respective um, cities. With, again, because of the fact that they stood outside, they were very 
um, very much affected by climatic condition, by weather condition, and they have acquired this very weathered um, look and appearance. And I didn't want to show you this, so I'll go back. Um, just in, in showing you this one example, um, I hope that I've made it clear that um, African art should be seen uh, with uh, two, uh, uh, or with a double pair of eyes, both from a contextual and from a more formal, can be uh, um, admired and looked at from a, a contextual and a formal point of view, but that in a certain way it's almost impossible and also um, 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 not advisable to separate those two things for other than purely theoretical method methodological purposes. There is something that we can call the power of form or the ideology, ideology of form, and that is that form always has meaning in any form of art, but especially when it comes to African art. Um, meaning informs form, literally, and that's why um, in looking at African art, but also in exhibiting African art, one should try to reconcile those two different aspects that have so often been separated uh, from each other, both formal excellence and and at the same time, contextual and content, uh, wealth in content and con contextual uh, wealth as such. And that is, that's also the goal and the aspiration that the new installation of the From Collection um, aspires to accomplish um, when it opens in 2008 here in Toronto. Thank you very much. I'm going to stop here so that there's time for questions and answers. Actually, I have a question to start, Costa, and it's a sure. personal question. How did you become interested in African art? What drew you? Obviously, have a passion for it. It's basically the fact that there was, there is and was a lot of African art in Belgium. Uh, we have one of the major uh, museums of African art in the world near Brussels, in a suburb of Brussels, mo probably the most important holding of African art um, anywhere, with a main emphasis on Central Africa. There's been a, a strong interest, um, in part, obviously, as a result of the colonial history of Belgium, where we owned a big part of Central Africa, uh, which is probably something we shouldn't be too proud about. Um, but that's uh, the reality that we are that we have, and um, so there's always been a strong presence of African art, and as a result of that, um, when you study art history in certain universities in Belgium, you automatically also get an introduction to African art. It's compulsory. Um, it's one part, and it has been since the early 1930s. It has been a compulsory kind of um, field of study um, in African art uh, history studies in Belgium. So that's one reason. The other reason, to be very honest, is the fact that I was, and it's in a certain way, ironic that um, what drew me mainly to African art is the contextual wealth of it and the fact that it's part of a living community and that um, very much of it is still very much alive and very present and that means among other things that um, there's still the opportunity um, to some extent to go to Africa to do field work, to live with and among peoples and not to do research purely based on things from the past and purely based on second-hand reports and on uh, dry, boring, dull, dusty archives and books written by authors who most of the time are dead already. So I thought that these uh, two elements definitely contributed um, to the, the interest of the field and, and, and drew me to it, basically. Yeah, I was just wondering how, like, you go through the slides and I'm wondering how many of the artists are actually known in your slides. You mentioned one artist that was known, but in terms of, and generally, like, as in the from collection, but also at large, like, in terms of how often are artists known and not known? Very often, 
very often their identities have not been recorded, and that's the reason why they are not known, meaning that outsiders who acquired this material and brought it back weren't interested in the question of the artist until very recently, some exceptions um, notwithstanding. Um, but at the same time, there are, and there is a growing number of names that have become known. Now, to me, it's still a, one thing to know a name, another thing to know something about the identity and the biography of the artist, and that's another story where much more work needs to be done still. Um, the fact of the matter is that in many instances, artists were locally known, appreciated, respected, especially true for the Cameroon grass fields where um, kings and their surroundings were the main patrons of the arts, where there was a strong interest in individual artistic creativity, where that was stimulated, and where as a result, um, there was a, an emphasis placed on the individual and the name of the creator uh, was um, uh, preserved and kept. At the same time, there is the reality that in many cultures, the name and the identity of the maker does not matter that much. And it's a little bit, maybe the, 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 um, uh, in the West, once people started to be interested in African art, they tend to uh, um, um, aspire to be able to equate and relate the art of Africa as much as they could with what happened uh, in Western art history. And some of the leading figures in, in our field have written about this, where they were driven and almost, they felt morally obliged to try and recover not names of artists, but then in retrospect they had, to, they had to admit that to many of the people it doesn't matter that much because ultimately what matters is what the object does and, and how it functions. And so the material origin of the object becomes secondary because, as I said, much of this art is functional, has a purpose to fulfill, relates to spirit world, to spiritual entities, and in a certain way asking who made it and uh, which human mortal was responsible for its material production was irrelevant and, and it would even um, in a certain way impede or, or could minimize the, um, the spiritual sacred impact of the object in question. Um, and that's why very often in a public discourse the names of the artists would not be mentioned because it would even um, be considered counterproductive basically from the viewpoint point of the cultures in question. So th there's different situations, different stories, but the reality is, of course, that one of the reasons why we have so few names is because of the fact that the, the research and the interest in it is, is relatively new. Um, and so in the meantime, a lot of information has been lost or forgotten. I understand that sometimes you say that the artist, or mostly, it's irrelevant who the artist is, but um, in case you would collect an object or a mask um, not from the original place, but uh, maybe it would be in Europe already or North America, uh, how do you identify the tribe, let's say, or the, the cultural background? I know that you can compare to other masks or to other, but is it always like completely 100% that you would know the background? No, they don't, and um, what, what has been um, done, and it's a very good question, uh, because it of course uh, points to another dimension. Um, the, the, when, when African art was first looked at and, and studied, people focused on stylistic features, and style aspects were keys of identification, and that was a very simplistic and very pragmatical approach to the matter. And unfortunately, because of the lack of individual artists' um, names, uh, people used either geographic or 
um, if possible, ethnic names. And that's why you see these names like Batufam referring to a kingdom, uh, ultimately having a kind of ethnic connotation, or earlier on, Chokwe, Luba, etc. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the idea that a people, especially if we're talking about a people of one or two million individuals, has one style is very naive and simplistic. And there's, in fact, a variety of styles that sheds light on geographic differences, on time differences, things that were made in the early 19th century look different from things that were made in the late 19th century. And that is also a notion that has only recently come to our attention. And then there are these individual differences, individual hands that are reflected in the artistic styles of a region. So even if uh, two Bangwa statues vaguely look the same and they point to the fact that this, stylistically speaking, they were made in the same broader region, there may be two artists at work and each one of them will reflect its own individual traits in that specific, more global style. So basically, in order to try and answer your question, yes, style is used as one way to identify objects. Very often, that leads to very general identifications and attributions. And um, very often, there's much to be desired. And there, it would be much more ideal if we would have more detailed background information about who made it and where it was made. Because the other reality is that even if an object was collected in a certain place in Africa, it doesn't mean that it was made in that place in Africa, because there was a lot of transfer and, and trade, traffic of objects locally, especially with successful carvers that carve for neighboring groups, etc. So even if you know that, you don't necessarily know where the object originated or where the particular style was invented. So there's still a lot of misconception, a lot of vagueness, and a lot of things that need to be um, studied and, and, and reconstructed, basically. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on one of the pieces from this uh, Batufam collection um, that you said you wished we could... Um, see it so that we could walk around, the mother and child figure that you described as a masterpiece. Can you elaborate on why it's a masterpiece? Well, it's a, a masterpiece for, for a number of reasons. When I say that, I obviously um, uh, am fully aware that I'm standing in an art museum's context and that I'm speaking in majority to a Western art museum audience. Um, but at the same time, uh, from what we know of the production that has survived from the Cameroon grass fields um, and that has been photographed and collected, um, we know that this kind of sculpture, because of its um, emphasis on construction of uh, physiognomic and anatomical features, uh, represents a, a primary example of the way the human figure was represented in um, Africa, in, a very, in, in that part of Africa, in a very general sense. On top of that, it was made um, for that, uh, as a commemorative portrait of Queen Nana, the wife of um, the, the, the chief uh, Metang, uh, who ruled in that early period in the 20th century. So it was made for a royal as a, a commemorative object, which in itself is already, through its use and function, is an indication of its value and status for the people themselves. And then there was documentation of that chiefdom and of these sculptures in the field where people ask the questions. And so in a certain way, um, in this case, more than in many other cases, I think it's even more justified to call it a masterpiece, both from the local um, uh, native Cameroonian point of view and our Western point of view as amateurs who have uh, fallen in love and, and uh, gotten to respect and admire many of these uh, various styles of the African subcontinent. 
Um, two questions. Could you um, explain a bit more about how the new gallery will try and reconcile those two things you mentioned, the aesthetics and the context? Will it, for example, include some of those really fascinating photographs that you've shown? And also you mentioned some of the art you said is a living tradition. So will you be bringing across any African people to be involved in any way in the, in the gallery or in the curation process? Two very, very good questions that are obviously crucial to any representation of African art in the West and have become um, central points on, on every curator's or exhibition maker's uh, agenda. Uh, to answer your first question, yes, the attempt will be to contextual obje contextualize objects as much as possible through photographs, as you mentioned, through text as such, and then hopefully also through the use of our modern technology, which allows us to introduce ways of interpretation which were not possible until relatively recently. This said, the emphasis will still be on individual objects, on artistic qualities of the objects, treating them just like we would treat any other form of art, at least in this museum's context and in many other art museums' contexts. Um, so, in, in other words, treating it basically in the same way like we would treat sculptural art forms from uh, Europe or from Asia, etc. Um, that would still be the main focus, and basically that's a kind of tribute to the person who collected these objects, who acquired these objects, who, whose collection it ultimately represents. Um, now, as to the question where, whether and to what extent to involve um, African uh, people who are still making or continuing these traditions, um, there's two ways of doing that. There's first of all the existing literature, which some of it is fr from a more recent date than other, and then there's also the um, attempt to involve local um, uh, the local community here, which should be uh, uh, um, around and available and, and um, able to contribute and to shed light on another perspective or to, to introduce another perspective on these artistic forms and traditions and elaborate from an insider's point of view on the meaning, on the function, on the social values that surround or have surrounded some of these objects. Um, and I think, again, that in, a, in, a, in addition to looking at um, Africa today, um, there, is, there are opportunities to, to look into how Africa is present in, in Western communities, in America in particular, as a result of uh, many different uh, factors. So um, there's definitely an, an aspiration and ambition to do this. Um, I'm just curious, you mentioned about uh, most of the objects, uh, the sculptures, they're not just aesthetic but functional. Um, are there any objects within this collection that are healing objects or I believe what's called Nkizi figures from the Democratic Republic of Congo? There's, in, in this selection, there's um, the Nkisi figure that you refer to. There's no example, but there's something that is called almost the same Kishi from the Songhe people. And um, the, the concept is very similar. The name is, is almost similar. The concept is very similar. And there, there is at least one example of that in the collection, a smaller scale human figure, which is actually similar in concept to one of the slides that I showed you earlier. Um, and while trying to continue to talk, I'll try to find that slide. Um, so, and there you have to do with an object that is uh, empowered through the addition of all kinds of substances of different plant, animal, and even human nail clippings, hair fragments, origins that are inserted into the object, um, surrounded by a ritual invocation and offering, and that transform this piece of sculpture into a living, active agent of power, and that are used for many different purposes, including healing, but 
also protection um, and also sometimes divination, revealing the causes of uh, certain uh, misfortunes and, and, and events. Uh, so yeah, there is one object as such, and there are other works in the collection that even though they are not literally from that part of Africa, um, that represent the same kind of ideas and concepts and that have to do with healing and with protection or used to in the, uh, at the time that they were produced and actively used in, in Africa. Quite interesting. Um, on your uh, slide of the, um, the palace, the African palace, um, my daughter wants to know, do the pillars function as totem poles in a memorial sense? Not literally, but the, but it's a good point because they do have a memorial commemorative, commemorative memorial memorial function to fulfill. And as I said, some of them can be really anecdotal. And in fact, I shouldn't have done this, gone gone back because now. But I'll I'll I know another way to get there. So let's do it this way. Um, that's a little bit easier. So let me first show you this image. That's the one that you were referring to, and that's the object that I in, in mind. It's not at the AGO, but it's very similar to the one in the collection. And then to go back to that, um, to this image, let's say, which shows on the right that uh, um, a part of a door frame, as it is present in this uh, collection, it's a, a, a real anecdotal or fragment of an anecdotal scene that has been transcribed and elaborated on, and it's, it's about the punishment by hanging of the lover of the, 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 the lover, the, the partner um, of a married queen, a queen who had transgressed uh, societal norms and regulations by having um, uh, an, an other partner um, and who was punished, uh, the partner as such was punished and, uh, and that is the scene that is represented in this door frame. So many of these door frames are very anecdotal um, with very historical accuracy and reference. Um, many of them refer to political events, uh, to investiture or installation rituals, um, uh, crowning rituals, if you wish, of a, of a king or chief, or to warfare, to, uh, um, to, to warfare and to um, 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 victory in warfare. But some of them have a much more mundane, daily kind of uh, reference. And, and they do, in that sense, are memorials or, or rem um, help remembering uh, feats and um, events of the past. Castor, I want to thank you so much for your generous sharing of your enthusiasm. I'm absolutely delighted at the thought that in 2008 we'll have these objects here permanently. We can slowly learn to love them and learn about them, and I can hear that it's such an enormous topic. So I can promise you I'll be doing a lot of programming because I want to learn about this stuff. Um, we're also expanding our collection in other areas, and it's about time too. Um, we have ship models from another collector, Ken Thompson. So uh, the next talk is actually on November 30th, when we'll be exploring the wonderful world of ship models, which is actually quite fascinating. Castor, uh, I would like to thank you so much. May I say he is completely delightful to work with. He is always like this. He's always generous and pleasant and wonderful. So thank you very much. <laughs>